Lord, um, we thank you for all the people we encounter in life, um, and thank you for the opportunities you've given with uh, Molly and her coworker, with Steve and uh, the person who gives his shots, and uh, even a, just a strange conversation with uh, Ken and um, a fraudster. Um, Lord, I just pray that, um, and, and just thank you for Lael and the opportunity she's had with the physical therapists, et cetera, um, through an injury. So, Lord, we just pray that you would use these conversations, that you would use these seeds to draw people to yourself. Um, Lord, we pray that you would give great grace um, and mercy. Um, and, Lord, we know that you uh, work in unexpected ways, and so we just pray for that. We pray to um, see you redeem people, convert people, and we pray that you would um, even bring them here to fellowship with us. We would ask for that. Pray for our morning as we um, spend time looking at who you are um, and the one of the most mysterious uh, parts about you, but that you reveal um, that you are one God and three persons. Help us to understand that and also know how to relate to you rightly. And so we just pray for that. We pray you bless uh, this week and uh, the coming weeks as we continue to explore you uh, and seek to know you. We ask these things in you, Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to recap, um, you know, we're, we're in this segment of knowing God. That is the goal. Uh, I'll remind you, it's kind of been sort of a theme verse. Um, uh, what Jesus says to the Father in John 17, 3, um, and this is eternal life, that you know, that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So from that verse and elsewhere in the scriptures, we can say that the goal of human existence is knowing God. And we've unpacked what does that mean. And of course, we want to know him relationally in the sense that you have a peaceful, harmonious relationship with God through the gospel, through what Christ has done through the gospel. Um, and then, but we also said that in that, as you know God as a believer, you also want to know more facts. You want to know, you want to increase in your notional knowledge of God, not as an end in of itself, but so that your affections are warmed uh, and you love God more and more because you know him more and more. And then you act, uh, actional knowledge. You act in, um, in right relationship to him and what he wants. And then we talked about, well, how do we know God? If our goal is knowing God, how do we know him? And we said we know him through his revelation. Where, what are the means, of the media of revelation? We talked about creation and history, but especially and particularly God's words. God's words through the prophets, God's words through his son, and then uh, for what we have, God's words in scripture. Uh, we said that human language is adequate to talk of God because God is inherently communicative in his being, and he has spoken about himself in the scriptures through human words. Uh, and so we take, uh, we take our direction from the human words he has given us in the scriptures to talk about himself, and we speak of him in his presence. God is present, so when we are speaking of him, we speak of him reverently in his presence, but we can use human words um, because God has shown, at, um, as he's communicated through the scriptures, uh, that um, here's how you talk about me, and here's how you talk about me in human words, okay? Uh, we've talked about how to investigate, uh, or we've investigated how to address God through his titles and his name. Uh, so we've talked about his, you know, uh, God, Elohim. We've talked about, uh, we've talked about um, El Shaddai and all of those different titles, Almighty, uh, All-Sufficient One. And we've talked about his name, Yahweh, and we went down that um, a little bit. 
And now we're kind of into, let's say, attributes of God proper, what you would normally think about when you're talking about attributes of God. Uh, you usually pick, pick an attribute, talk about it. And so we've talked about God as creator and sustainer. And then the last thing we did a month ago is we talked about God's eternality and what that, um, what that might mean. And so now what we want to do is we want to talk about uh, one of the most, e- I don't know how you would rank this, but uh, one of the most essential doctrines of the Christian faith, uh, the Trinity, right? Um, if we're going to talk about God and we're going to talk about knowing God, then we were go- we're going to talk about the one God existing in three persons, um, and here's the thing, we don't want to proceed in this, we never want to proceed in doctrine as if it's just, all right, got that fact checked off, and I'm good to go, and we certainly don't want to do that with the Trinity, because it's not about just having this doctrine nailed down in an orthodox way, it's about how do we relate, how do we relate to the Father, how do we relate to the Son, how do we relate to the Spirit, how do we relate to all three persons as one God? So as we march through this, yes, we're going to be talking scriptures, we're going to be talking about ideas and concepts that are difficult, but we don't want to stop there. We want to have that fuel us in how we relate to knowing this uh, great and awesome triune God. Now, let's, let's just highlight this a little bit. Uh, some people ask, well, what, what's the big deal? Why, why does it matter uh, that God is a trinity? Uh, apart from the fact that God has revealed himself to be such, right, why would it matter whether God was a trinity or not. Well, let's just think of for a minute about if God were a singular, solitary person. For example, Islam, Allah, is a single, solitary person. There is one God, but there is only one person. Um, so uh, the, the, the fancy term for that is a monad. <laughs> He's just single, one. How does that change things if, um, and, and uh, this might be a little bit of abstract thinking, but you have just one God who's one person, what are the consequences of that that you can think of? Uh, yeah, Susan. Yes? Exactly, right? So that's, that's a very key reality. Uh, and you see this, even, especially in the Gospel of John, and even more particularly in John 17, if you've got a single person who exists for all, uh, all eternity, that person cannot show love, um, because love involves another person. Whereas what we actually have in God, as God's triunity is you have the persons in fellowship uh, for all eternity, loving one another perfectly. But you can't do that. Um, if that can't happen if God is a single uh, solitary being. Even worse, um, you, uh, the, and it's connected with the idea of God as love, there's no relationality. There's no relationality, right? So there's no relationality in, in God if he were a single person. Um, and so there's no relationality with humanity. And in fact, you see this with, let's say, Allah, but also other false gods from um, the Old Testament, like, uh, there's, there's, there's a supremacy, there's a transcendence, but there's no relationality. Why would you have a relationship with human, humanity unless you had love and you wanted out of the overflow of that love to, to relate to other even very inferior, human, uh, inferior creatures, right? So um, those are just a couple ideas of like why this is important, okay? So it's not just some esoteric doctrine. It is essential to who God is 
uh, how he's revealed himself and how we relate to him, okay? Um, uh, another aspect of this is as we think about redemption, uh, every, uh, think about redemption. If God was a single isolated person, what would happen with redemption? There wouldn't be any. Why would there not be any redemption? Exactly. If, if, if one person, if, if he dies, who's going to raise him, right? Uh, the father didn't die on the cross. The son died on the cross, right? The spirit didn't die on the cross. The son did, uh, died in his human nature. So uh, the, 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 because God is a trinity, it, 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 it fuels his mission and his redemptive mission in the world. So you, again, you see this highlighted in the Gospel of John, uh, that all three persons are working perfectly in harmonious actions together for the purposes of rejection. They're all in and they're all involved. And they're doing different things. They all work together towards the same end, but they're doing different things in the, uh, the, the, the work of redemption. Okay? Um, yes, Julie. Julie. If you have fallen man, how is fallen man to be redeemed? Uh, you can't do it through another creature. You need an, um, an infinitely valuable, perfect uh, redeemer, right? The perfect man, uh, which is what happens through the sun, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's multiple problems here if we think about just the, the aspect of redemption. So when we talk about the Trinity, it is not just that we're getting our doctrinal ducks in a row. Uh, we want to do that because we're speaking of God. But um, we are thinking, like, this is essential to everything. Uh, and how do we relate to this God rightly? Okay. Um, now, let's make some obvious statements. The Trinity is unlike any other being. Right? <laughs> there is no other being like the Trinity, um, like the triune God. So the, what does that mean? It means this doctrine is hard. Right? Because we have no other being in existence that is like God in this way. And so it's hard for us to, it's true, and God has revealed himself as such, and he's given us adequate revelation to think of him rightly, but it's still hard. So here's what's going to happen, and what has happened historically, is with the Trinity, there's going to either be a tendency to overemphasize God's oneness, or there's going to be a tendency to overemphasize God's threeness. So I don't know if you've ever heard... Um, uh, let's say the, the the analogy. Oh, God is three persons in the sense that he wears, you know, he's a he's a father. Sometimes he wears a father hat, and sometimes he wears like the son hat, and sometimes he wears like the spirit hat. And he just it's the same person really, but he's just like switching hats, right? Switching offices. That's called the heresy known as modalism. Um, but what is happening there is that God's oneness has been overemphasized. So you broke the doctrine of the Trinity, by overemphasizing God's oneness. On the flip side, um, if you overemphasize God's threeness, then you're into something called tritheism. Tritheism, where you are believing that really there's three gods. And functionally, we can fall into this pretty quickly if we're not careful, right? Where we think of, well, there's the Spirit and the Son and the Father, and they all agree um, but we might think of them as three different beings. They are not three different beings. They are one being, but three persons. 
Uh, and so this is a doctrine that is difficult. Um, it is true, uh, but we want to be careful walking into this not to overemphasize God's oneness, and we'll talk about what that means, uh, or God's threeness, uh, and we'll talk about what that means, okay? Um, along with this, we got to, I'll say this up front, beware all analogies. Mistrust every analogy of the Trinity. Because somewhere along the line, like we said, there's no other being in existence um, like the triune God. So that means uh, almost de facto that every other analogy that you would try to use is going to fall short and actually distort the doctrine of the Trinity. So, you know, you've got the egg analogy. Well, you've got the shell and you've got the yolk and you've got the white, right? Um, well, the problem is, is that you've just, uh, that's tritheistic because the shell is not the whole egg, um, nor is the, the white goop, uh, nor is the egg, nor is it very, um, I mean, honoring to God to talk of him like an egg anyway. So, um, you see, these are the problems with analogies. Um, I do think uh, God gives us language like father and son, uh, and he also gives language like word uh, that helps us, but we've got to be very, very careful with analogies because... Um, of uh, they're going to fall short at some level or another. Okay, let's pause there. A any thoughts or questions? Before I'm just kind of setting the ground rules um, before we start looking at some scripture. Yeah. Right. Right. And similarly with Islam, uh, Islam will. Um, there's a point in the Quran where it says, "Say not three, uh, which is essentially referring to what is perceived to be the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, although it's distorted. Um, in fact, what's interesting, I, I, I can't remember who made this claim, but if you trace any major heresy in the church, you're ultimately going to come back to a distortion of the Trinity and who the Son is, right? And so this is, again, it highlights the importance of this doctrine, okay? Uh, any other questions? Uh, again, I'm just setting ground rules before we jump into some, some, some text here. So any, yeah, uh, Vicki. Well, I think even something like uh, in Islam, I think, um, I think um, the, that Muslims would believe they have a relationship with Allah, but it's a very different sort of relationship. So it's still a personal relationship, but it's a very different sort of personal relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just still kind of compass it under that 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 heading of relationship. But I mean, you even 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 other um, uh, cults, right? So like um, Jehovah's Witnesses or um, um, gosh, come on, um, Muslims. No, no, I, we were talking Mormons. There we go. Um, Mormons, like they're still going to kind of talk in that way, but the relationship is always going to look different because you're relating to a different God right, in your conception. So a personal relationship, like, do I have a personal relationship with, um, uh, you know, uh, 
a, a single solitary God uh, and who has expectations and maybe doesn't express love. Yeah, I can, but it's a very, very different sort of relationship. It's not, it's not the same because you don't believe in the same God. So, yes, Lori. Right. We'll get to that. I know the Jewish people that we know said that's a big question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're monotheistic in the sense, really, Orthodox Judaism at this point essentially is a lot like Islam. In the sense that, um, not that they're looking at the Quran or anything like that, they're looking at the Old Testament scriptures, but in the sense that God is a single person, right? Um, and yeah, you're right, that's the stumbling block, uh, to believe that the Messiah is God. So like you look at, say, the time between uh, the ending of the Old Testament and when Jesus steps onto the scene, it's, it's just like in Christianity or even Judaism today, there's different groups that have different beliefs um, you know, definitely, we see in the Old Testament there's language that claims that the Messiah is God, but it's not like repeated enough and like prominent enough to where like every Jew is believing that. Some may have, or at least gotten close, but uh, um, uh, or at least um, there's some like mystery there. Um, but there's a div- diversity of beliefs, even in Jesus' day, about who the Messiah was going to be. Uh, and what he's going to do um, ex- exactly, right? So, um, but as far as what separates current Judaism from Christianity, yeah, it's going to be accepting Jesus to be the Son of God in the sense of God the Son, that he is God in his, um, in his person. So, Okay, um, let's keep marching on. These are good questions, and I'm sure you're going to ask more as we go. So uh, here's the other fact about the Trinity. The Trinity is, and it kind of connects with what we were just saying, actually, the Trinity is revealed progressively through Scripture. Uh, in other words, I don't think um, you could come out of the Old Testament with the doctrine of the Trinity. You would come out with essentially this, and I'll try to trace this for you. You would come out primarily with understanding God is one. Um, he is one God. There is only one true God. But you would also come across passages, and we'll go to some of these, where there are indications of multiple persons in this oneness. That's, I think, the most you can get from the Old Testament, is, yes, God is one God, uh, and yet there are some weird statements that get made in the Old Testament that seem to indicate some sort of plurality in that oneness, okay? But uh, really, when Jesus steps onto the scene is when we get the uh, uh, the full disclosure of God's three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you've got to understand that as we walk through the Scriptures, God didn't reveal this all at once. Uh, he revealed it progressively uh, through the Scriptures. And so we're going to follow that same basic flow in at least investigating the Scriptural text for this doctrine. Here's the catch, though. I'm going to show you some Old Testament passages where there are some weird, like, statements that's like, well, we know God is one, but then he's also talking about himself or he makes some statements that seem to indicate a plurality. So I'm going to show you those, but what I'm not saying by showing you those is that that gives a full proof or doctrine of the Trinity. 
nor should we read back the New Testament onto the Old. You've got to listen to the authorial intent in that text. And so most we're going to come away with is basically, huh, that's odd. Uh, I don't know how to think about that, but God said it. Uh, until you get, it kind of sets up for what you finally gets revealed in the New Testament. We don't want to read the, read the New Testament onto the Old. We want to follow the flow of revelation that God is giving. Okay? So that is all set up, um, and I'm about ready to get into um, uh, the, the, some scriptures, okay? Uh, any questions, comments before we go, jump into the scriptures? All right. First, let's just talk about the idea, um, even apart from God, of oneness and diversity. Oneness and diversity. And uh, go to Genesis 1. Go to Genesis 1. Because even apart, like I said, there's no, there's no, there's no, obviously no creature there's no being like God, and yet in the things that He has created, uh, there are indications, uh, in instances of unity and plurality. Okay, um, so let's read. Um, let's read uh, Genesis one twenty-seven. So I'm going to read Genesis one twenty-seven. Okay, so what did God create here? He created humanity. Uh, humanity, meaning uh, mankind, right? He created one thing, okay? What else did he create? Yeah, distinction, right? So you have a unity, uh, a, 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 um, uh, a unity of mankind, uh, the nature of mankind, but that human nature uh, exists concretely in either male or female, right? Uh, so you've got two-ness and oneness in this case. Uh, and all that just illustrates is just, okay, this isn't a foreign concept. You can have a unity that has a plurality in it. We have one humanity, but two genders, okay? That's not the exact same as the Trinity. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that the idea of unity and diversity, unity and plurality, are not antithetical to each other. They don't contradict one another. Okay? Uh, even in the same light, uh, go to um, Genesis 2 um, uh, and read Genesis 2.24. Okay, so what do we, it's similar and different from what we just read in Genesis 1. What is going on here? Yeah, there's a oneness and there's a two-ness here. What's the oneness? What's that? Right, that union, that, um, and that bond is not merely physical. It is, um, even as is related elsewhere in Scripture, it is spiritual, right? There is God bringing two people together in a oneness, um, and so again, we have a oneness and a two-ness here, right? A oneness and a two-ness. It's not the same as the Trinity, but it is illustrating that idea that oneness 
and plurality are not opposed to each other. Okay? Yes, Mike. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Well, the, so you're talking about that image language, right? Yeah. So the image language here is um, primarily functional in the sense that um, well, are there things that God has put into man that reflect his own character? Absolutely. So there is that imaging sort of idea. But primarily the image language here is um, man is supposed to be a stewardship ruler, a priest and a king, uh, and to image forth God to the rest of creation. To re represent him would be another way to say that. So there's only so far you can go with man as the image of God sort of language. It gets you, you can, there is an analogy, there is a uh, replication to an extent, uh, but it is not the same until you get to Jesus, who is the perfect image of the invisible God, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good. No, good, good connection. Um, okay. So, uh, all we wanted to do for those two texts was I the idea that even in the Old Testament, oneness and plurality are not, um, they're not in conflict with each other, right? There's a category for that. All right, now let's jump into actually looking at God himself. So, we're still going to be in Genesis 1. Someone read Genesis 1, 1 through 2. Okay, so who created the world? God. God did. One being, right? Uh, God created the world. Very clear. However, um, what's going on in verse 2? The Spirit is hovering over the water. Yeah, the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Now, the word spirit in Hebrew, it can mean wind. It can mean breath. So some people just translate this, say, well, there's a great wind from God um, swirling over the waters or something like that. I don't think that's right because uh, the word hovering. Hovering is this language that normally connotes something like a bird, um, like flying. So it's not saying that the spirit is, is, is a creature. It's just saying that um, the, way it's, the way the spirit is described here, it goes beyond something like a wind. Um, it, it's, it's, it's some other entity. Let's just put it that way. And so what do we have here already? We have... God and his spirit. I mean, everything else is inanimate at this point. Um, it's just stuff, uh, unformed stuff that God has that he's creating, right? So you at least have God and another entity, the spirit of God, okay? Now, some might say, well, maybe that's just God's power. Maybe it's just a way of describing it like that. Maybe it's not an actual person. Oh, yeah, there's not much you can derive from just Genesis um, 2. But at least we can say that the spirit of God is another entity, uh, distinct from God, and yet somehow connected to him, because he is the spirit of God, okay? Now, jump down to, oh, yes, Vicki. Yes. 
Yes. So we kind of talked about that with God's titles. Elohim uh, is used with, uh, it is a plural form, but a plural form in Hebrew doesn't always mean a plural, uh, like a plurality of persons, okay? So sometimes Elohim is used of like gods, like false gods, okay? But um, the plural can also uh, designate something called like a, um, uh, gosh, a plural of grandeur or of majesty. Okay, so, what's that? Yeah, it's, it's like, because uh, th- that plural is used with, like, a, plural forms like that are used with humans, and all it's trying to say is something like supreme. So it's kind of like uh, Elohim would be like the supreme God, right? So it's the, the he's the most characterized by godness, uh, by divinity, okay? So you can't infer just from the plural form Elohim that, um, that that's referring to uh, a plurality in God himself. But what we do see here, right, is we see the single, uh, we do see the, the, the being God, the single being God creating, and yet we also see another entity, the spirit of God, who somehow connected with God and yet distinct from him, also involved in creation. So there's like, huh, that's, that's interesting. And it gets more interesting in Genesis 1. Uh, so right before uh, Genesis 1.27, now from Genesis 1.27, who created man? God, a single being created man, okay? But look at Genesis 1.26. Yeah, so let's go ahead and read it. 1.26. So, us, right? That's the thing that sticks out. You've got God, the being God, the one being God, creating mankind, and yet you've got here some sort of dialogue with someone, right? Because there's an us going on, right? Now, um, some people, like I was just talking about with Elohim, some people argue, well, that's just another plural of majesty. That doesn't seem to fit, because now you've got some sort of dialogue happening, Right? You've got dialogue, so that doesn't seem to work. Some people say, well, God is talking to the council of angels. And that does happen in uh, the scriptures. If you were to look at the scriptures broadly, God does have, sort of have a heavenly council of angels. What's the problem with that in this text? Yeah, good. So he didn't make us in angels. And it was just, it's never is the scripture talking about uh, angels creating, right? Um, so that's, this is one of those passages where it's like, huh, there's a plurality and there's a unity. But that's the most you can say, right? There's a plurality and there's a unity. We can say just a tad more, maybe. What's the most likely referent of us in the context of this passage? Exactly, the Holy Spirit, right? Um, because God and the Spirit of God have been mentioned, so we've at least got a plurality there. The most likely referent, maybe um, not exhaustively, but at least the most likely referent of us is God and the Spirit, at the very least, at the very least, God and the Spirit talking, okay? 
So again, we have a unity and a plurality, but that's about the most you can say from this text. Questions? Yes, Mike. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where um, we, w- we would want to think about uh, the original audience and what would they have heard that word image to mean. So think of like um, who this, Moses was writing to Israelites who just came out from Egypt. And in the context of Egypt and the ancient Near East, generally speaking, uh, the idea of, say, the Pharaoh is the Pharaoh is the image of the God, meaning what? He is the, he, that, that, the Pharaoh has a, um, is in the likeness of the God in the sense that that word likeness uh, is a father-son sort of relationship. Uh, You can see that in Genesis 5. uh, It talks about how Seth is in the likeness of Adam. So that's a father-son sort of language. So there's a connection there. But image, image is more horizontal in the sense that it's outward looking, like representative. So like the Pharaoh has a relationship with a god or one of the gods of the, the Egyptian pantheon, but then he is the image in the sense that he is the representative of that god to, to, the, to the nation, uh, to, to Egypt. Uh, or another way to think about it, uh, kings in the ancient Near East, they used to make statues of themselves, images, and they would put those images throughout their domains to represent, I rule here. I rule here. So the idea of image, uh, there is a connection between God um, creating a representative for himself, but it's not in the sense of like a mirror, like we would think of, okay, I'm looking at a mirror. It's in the sense of representation. And even Jesus, um, right, he is the perfect man, so he is the perfect image bearer. But he's also the perfect image bearer because he is in his person, God himself, okay? So it's a little bit in a different notion of image than we would maybe naturally think about in our context. So, yeah, good question. Uh, yes, Bruce. Uh, when you said that, that makes that an argument that these sons of the angels. Right. Then the angel would be in the image of God also. Mm-hmm. And then he would be kind of that image of God. Yeah, and, and so there's all sorts of problems with the angel view in my, my I think looking at the text and even looking at it in context, there's enough to say what? God is single being because there's plenty of single verbs and single references to God, but there's also a plurality that's referenced. And so that's just like, huh. Uh, doesn't explain it, just is, right? Um, it just is presented. God is presenting himself that way. Even more, so turn to Genesis 3. So don't mishear what I'm saying here. I am not saying that that gives you the full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. I'm saying that because of who God is, God is always a Trinity. If he's a Trinity, he's always been a Trinity, right? And he's just revealed a little bit about himself, but not the full meal deal, not the full meal deal yet, okay? I'm just saying that there's enough there to say there's, un- there's a-, a oneness in God and there's a plurality. You see that again, uh, Genesis 3, uh, after the fall, okay? So this is after the fall and after the... the, the um, the judgment is given to Adam and Eve and the serpent. 
Um, so someone read Genesis 3.22. Okay, so what's pertinent here for our discussion? Us. Us. Yeah, he's talking to himself again. And even, it's a little bit interesting, he's become like one of us, which is just interesting, right? So it's not just an us, it's like uh, there's a a way to separate a one from us, uh, which is just interesting. And even more than that, what one, the man's going to become like one of us in what sense? Knowing good and evil. So, uh, at the very least, we can say that that's, that's a depiction of God's uh, moral knowledge, right? A knower. He's a knower. So, we're not just talking about, like, uh, this... Uh, we're, we're talking about a sort of one from us in the sense that there's, a, there's another knower there. You see how that kind of works? Again, it's just hints, but it's just pieces of, like, how God is revealing himself, okay? Um... We can also see this in Genesis 11. Go to Genesis 11. Uh, Let's read, so this is Tower of Babel. Uh, Let's read 11, 5 through 7. Uh, 11, 5 through 8. Okay, so what's pertinent for, there for our discussion? Another us, right? So there's, uh, there's, there's dialogue within God. But then who confuses... So there's dialogue within God that is, um, you know, uh, we're gonna, let's confuse the language. And then who confuses the language? That's Yahweh, right? So Yahweh confuses the language. So you've got... Again, uh, uni- uh, uh, one entity and yet a plurality happening together, right? In the early chapters of Genesis, right? It's not all explained. It's just like, huh, that's weird. Um, but it, it, it's the starting point of God revealing who he is. Um, and it's not like God is going on a dissertation about like, all right, l- listen up. Here's who I am. Let me lay that out for you. This is incidental to what the primary purpose of the text is, right? It's just like he happens to mention it. Uh, and it's like, wow, we can derive some information from that, okay? Uh, okay, now, that being said, uh, we must affirm and uh, from the Old Testament that there is one God and it is, there is no other. Go to Exodus 20, verse 3. So, we've seen a oneness and we've seen a plurality, but now let's, like, let's just emphasize that the scriptures do say there's there's, uh, there's a oneness and exclusivity uh, to God. So go to Exodus 20, Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, uh, 20, verse 3. 
Exodus 20, verse 3? Yeah, so you shall have another gods before me. Now, that doesn't necessarily say there's one God. It just says that, um, you know, don't, don't go to any other idols necessarily. But it does at least say the exclusivity of worshiping this one God. But we get more statements than that. Go to Deuteronomy 4.39. So at least Exodus 20, verse 3 says there's exclusive, exclusive worship to this one God. Um, Deuteronomy 4.39. Someone go ahead and read that. Okay, so Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There's only one um, God like Yahweh. Um, there is only, there is no other God, okay? Which also forms the basis of the Shema. Someone mentioned that earlier in Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4 here, this is kind of like the... Uh, Oh, this is kind of like the, the law in summary form in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, okay? And what, how the law is supposed to work. But uh, listen to this, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. Uh, there's some d- dispute about how to translate that, uh, but uh, there's the, the conclusion, like, there, this is our God, he's one. There's no other God. We saw that from Deuteronomy 439, Um there is uh, one Yahweh, one Yahweh. And so what do you do? If there's one Yahweh, you love that one Yahweh with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I'm, again, I'm going to these texts to show, yeah, uh, very clear. Uh, uh, there is one God and only one God. We can see even more emphatic statements in Isaiah. Uh, like Isaiah is all about this. He's like, all right, you want to talk about your idols? You want to talk about your gods? Now, I will say this, the New Testament does indicate that behind every false god is a demon, so it's not as if there is a, like, there is still a, um, uh, uh, what's the right way to say it, supernatural character behind these false gods, okay? So we don't want to deny that, but as far as there being uh, a god like the one god, um, like Yahweh, there is none. Uh, so Isaiah 46, let's do Isaiah 46. Um, actually, let's do a couple. Let's do Isaiah 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, verse 8. Okay, so uh, God is saying, my glory and my name I reserve for myself, okay? I don't give that to anyone else. That's an important thing to recognize, especially once we wander into the New Testament eventually. But go ahead and skip over to Isaiah 46. Um, so he's saying, there is no other God. God is declaring there is no other God. Uh, I don't give my glory or my name to anyone else, right? Uh, his, his name is not just, oh, here's what I'm called by, but it's also tied in with God's reputation and who he is, right? So he's saying, uh, this is my name, Yahweh, and there is no other, okay? 
Uh, Isaiah 46, 8 and 9. Someone go ahead and read that. So, it can't get any more clear than that. There is one God. There is only one God. There is one God. His name is Yahweh. Okay? So, that is um, the sort of monotheism that we have. But we've already seen, right, that God is happy, even though he is one God, one Yahweh, he is happy to talk about uh, an us and have dialogue within himself. He's happy to talk about the spirit of God. And in fact, there's more in the Old Testament, but we're going to have to save that for next week. Okay. Um, hopefully, um, this is this is um, helping you see. This isn't. We can see these things from the text themselves. This isn't some made-up doctrine. There is biblical evidence and a foundation, even from the Old Testament, uh, even though it's not full-blown explicit. Um, there, there is a foundation even in the Old Testament for. God, plurality and unity in the one God. So with that, let's go ahead and pray and, uh, and worship this one God. God in heaven, Yahweh, there is no other besides you. There is no other God. Yes, there are demons, there are angels that you have created, O Lord God, and yet none, no one, and nothing, no creature uh, can compare with you. You are awesome. And Lord God, we know you are three persons. We know that from the New Testament that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, that is difficult for us because you are utterly unique in who you are. Lord, help us to worship you rightly. Help us to relate to you rightly for your honor and your praise. And so even as we come to worship in the gathering with your people this morning, help us to sing rightly. Help us to hear your word. Help us to uh, live, um, to, to have relational, notional, uh, affectional, and actional knowledge, O oh Lord God, unified because we love you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to, to love you with all of, love the one true God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And help us to proclaim you, to proclaim you not as some generic God, but to proclaim you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God to those around us. Lord, we ask for grace to do so in um, we praise you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen.